Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Text Message. I'm Nate Blankson. And I'm Ian Morris. And this week, a bit of a slow week in terms of UK technology news, but a few things have been pulled out of the bag. And later on in the show, we are going to take a little bit of a sideways look at 4K gaming, 4K resolution video gaming, partly in light of the fact that Ian is in the market to purchase uh, indeed a monitor for a gaming system. And also perhaps because I've just bought a 4K television. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But we're going to start by talking about the BBC Microbit. Now, this is an ingenious and I think inspiring little piece of low-cost hardware. The Microbit, for want of a better explanation, is a, a device about the size of, uh, sort of half a credit card, I think you would, you would say, a bit smaller than the Raspberry Pi. It's very small. And the news is that this product is going to go on sale to the general public. Now, that side of the story is all a bit PRE nonsense, not that interested in it. But the overall picture of what the Raspberry Pi, sorry, the Microbit is doing, I think is a lot more interesting. So this is a product that is aimed to get kids coding. It's being developed in partnership with many, many companies. Microsoft is involved. Arm is involved. Samsung is involved. Um, there are the Python Foundation is involved. Um, there are huge numbers of companies involved in financing this little piece of technology. And the the goal is for it to be given away for free to every single year seven, which uh, is year uh, 11 years old, every year seven child in Britain, in British schools. And it's been doing very, very well. Apparently, it's in about 80% of schools, um, according to some numbers that I've seen. And it's being used by about 750,000 children aged 11 to 12 since its launch, I think, was it last year? Late last year? Or was it earlier this year? I forget now. I think it was early this year. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel like very long ago that it actually finally launched. They've been talking about it for quite a while, but I think it was this year. But it seems to be doing well, and it's a sign that it's, uh, that it's being doing well, that it's being used by nearly a million kids and is going on wider sale. So a number of outlets and, and, uh, and people are going to be selling this. So just Google Microbit to find out who's selling it. But I think this is this is great. And the reason I think this is such an important thing to touch upon is because last time that this happened was back in the 1980s. I think it was 1981, um, where the BBC had set up a department or a program called the BBC Computer Literacy Project. This kicked off around the very beginning of 1980, over 30 years ago. And it ended up being the uh, originator of a computer called the BBC Micro, which was actually built by Acorn, the uh, the British uh, computer manufacturer, very popular in the 1980s and early 90s. This is a fairly simple layout, but it's fairly standard for most micros. That's right. It's got the three elements that you expect to find. The computer itself, 
uh, colour monitor so that we can look at the output pictures from the computer, and a cassette recorder for playing the programmes back into the computer. Well, I haven't got a monitor. I use an ordinary television set. What's the difference? Well, that's fine. Uh, you can use that quite well, but with a colour monitor you get a much sharper and crisper picture, particularly when you're using colour graphics. It shows things up a lot more clearly. But you can't use it to get television pictures, I suppose. That's right, that's right. <laughs> this device, which was, for want of a better explanation, a PC designed for schools that had a... I don't think it had a monitor by default. It was most, mostly just the computer itself. But certainly most c schools had it connected to a either a green screen or, or some other very low-resolution screen. And the thing was on offer, was, was sold for over a decade. And... I don't. I mean, I learnt how to use a computer on this thing in the in sort of the uh, mid '80s. Ian, you're not that much older than me. I imagine you probably used this at school around the same I did. same yeah, time yeah, yeah. I did. Yep. So I think we were probably in the same school at the same time. You were at the top end of the age bracket, me at the lower end <laughs> um, <laughs> over that five or six years. But it was great, and lots of kids used this, and it was brilliant. And now it looks like this is going to actually happen again as a result of this micro bit, and it, it seems to be doing pretty well. Now, I, I've talked for a long time. Ian, um, what is your view? You have kids, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Is this, what is your view on, on the micro bit so far? In... Well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of these tiny little cheap computers. I think it's a really nice way for kids to get interested in coding. Um, you know, like you, the BBCB, for me, was always... Um, and the related computers were always um, the reason that I was interested in computers. I, I don't believe I would be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for the fact that when I was a kid, I was exposed to um, what was at the time cutting edge. I mean, you know, this this was stuff that it was expensive and my dad um, really wanted a BBCB, so he spent quite a lot of money on them. And I think in equivalent numbers, it was well over a £1,000 of today's money. Mm. Um, but uh, it was important to him and it, and it became very important to me and it was a wonderful way to learn about computers. It was a great way of working. On the BBC microcomputer, we've got a command called sound and this enables us to assemble the ingredients to make a simple sound. Well, first of all, we have to think about which channel of sound we want to use because the BBC micro actually produces four sounds through four channels because there's a sound chip buried deep beneath the cover of the machine is beavering way producing these four sounds. So first of all, let's go for channel number one. Next we come to the volume. Well, the volume can be from minus 15 up to zero. Minus 15 is, in fact, the loudest. Um, then we come to the pitch. Well, I'm going to put in a value of four, and four, in fact, is middle C, halfway up the average uh, piano. Next we come to the duration. Well, I'm going to put in 20, which is a sort of reasonably short length. And then when I hit return, we'll hear the sound. It's a long way from being music. Yes, it's pretty boring. You could attach the proper big floppy disks, couldn't you? You could get a, an external drive, which I asked for for a birthday present once. And, wow. Um, yeah, and, it, you know, it's, it was fantastic. So, I mean, a lot of people don't have the experience with those little, those huge, I just said not little, those huge floppy disks. Um, but it's, uh, it, it, those are really cherished memories for me because it, it, it feels really old-fashioned now, but I can still feel the excitement of... You know, holding those big discs in my hand and the and you know, getting them booting up and stuff like that. So, uh, when it comes to things like that, I, I you I could not be more enthusiastic for what they represent for the youth um, as a way of getting knowledgeable about computers with things that you know it's a thirteen pound product. It, you know, you break it, it doesn't matter. Um, 
you know, giving them away is a great idea. It means that there's no barrier to entry. It means that the, you know, the kids with plenty of money get them and the kids with no money get them. And everyone can learn how to code. And we will see people come from this project and they will become amazing games developers and, you know, coders and app developers and all that kind of stuff, which is absolutely what the country needs, right? I mean, you know, we can't, we, we don't have a lot of manufacturing. We have some. We don't have mining. Uh, you know, we have some. Uh, but what we do have is people who are, you know, bright and ready to learn and, and who, who have a, a good head start in this country that other countries don't have with projects like this. So I'm very excited. I mean, the Raspberry Pi um, obviously is a, is a better, in, in terms of its power, it is a bit more akin to the sort of power you might get in a smartphone, isn't it? So yeah, it's I mean, kind of that's a good way to get into, say, app development. But this, the micro bit, offers a much some younger children, I think, a way of learning that you can do things with code, and actually, it's not difficult. And that's that's a really good point because the the, the products are often discussed in the same sentences, and, and we've done that here today. But the the, the the device itself is is really very very basic and it is aimed at specifically getting kids learning how to code it's not you know i mean this thing has a 16 megahertz processor 16 <laughs> megahertz not powerful is no it? it has 256k of flash memory it has 16k of ram to put that into const- into context my machine that i'm recording this podcast on has 16 gigabytes of ram this has only 16k not even 16 meg or goodness only knows gig it is just 16k of ram so very very low most of the display is actually red leds on the surface of the device but there are applications it has usb it has bluetooth it has an accelerometer it has a magnetometer it has um a micro usb connector for connecting to other devices and you can program it using a variety of software packs some you can use on a desktop pc and then you flash the device with the code and see it executed you can use a tablet or a phone using some microsoft software as well but it's very much designed towards coding but i just think it's it's a neat initiative that you know 30 years ago kind of laid the a, a similar initiative laid the groundwork for how you know kids like you and i at the time in learned how to interact with computers yeah and that worked out very very well indeed for well my guess is you know that the development the, the the rich coding and gaming platform you know development we've done in this country you know games like grand theft auto were developed in scotland things like that i i would hypothesize are from people who grew up in our era who had that kind of stimulation from you know maybe a bit later than the BBCB, but you know there was there were other things like the Amstrads and you know other low cost computers, all in ones that c- would give people the same opportunities. And I think I think the key message to take away here is obviously the news hook, if you like, for talking about this again, is that it's going on sale for general availability. Normally, this was just sent directly to schools. It's funded by the partners that work with the BBC to to produce this, um, like Microsoft and exactly similar. Barclays and, and a whole bunch of other people have have sort of uh, financed this. But the fact that it can be bought at retail now basically means that if you're a parent, if you're if you have a, if you're an older brother or sister, and you have a younger sister or younger brother, this is the kind of stuff that they're going to start learning learning to use in school. So it might be a great opportunity for for as older people to know how to use these and, and sort of encourage some of that sort of thing at home. I think it's I think it's neat. 
Oh, and also another, um, just another point about the limitations of it, which actually I th- I, f- I find really interesting. Um, I would I'm quite excited about the idea of kids learning to code on minimal hardware, uh, because we have definitely reached a point where coders are perhaps not turning out the kind of tight code that they need to um because everything's so powerful like you you know I, i'm sitting at a desk with a an i7 and 16 gigs of ram like you and uh, and, a, and a gpu that is incredibly powerful and it's easy to simply write programs that will use up all of that power but for me the real skill of code is to write efficient code that you know is executed in the smallest possible memory footprint and uh, you know, you get a lot of speed from that, but it's also good discipline to learn to code properly. So that's another good thing about it, although it's uh, quite limited. If you can write an app for that, then you are a good coder. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think the key thing, the key message is that, you know, back in, what, 1960-something, when we first landed on the moon, the processing power that was available in the computers on board that spaceship was so small and so rudimentary that, you know, it, it it required that kind of expertise in coding in order to make it work. And these systems are probably, in the grand scheme of things, not that far removed um, in terms of their processing ability. So an interesting way, an interesting way to frame it to the kids, let's say. Hmm, you can send something to the moon, theoretically. Indeed, or further. It requires rocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, electronic mail means that you have a large number of computers all over the country or all over the world, and those computers are able to communicate with a large mainframe. Now, supposing I've written a letter and I want to send it to somebody else, I can plug into the mainframe or dial up the ma- mainframe and send that message into the mainframe. And then I might have another message for another person. Uh, I can again put that in the mainframe where it's stored. And then I can disconnect and leave them, leave the letters sitting there. And then at some stage, several hours later, somebody else could connect on and pick up their message. And then the other person could come on and pick up their message. Ian, it is time to whip out the British Telecom flag of conversation because <laughs> it's back in the news and yes. we have talked about BT Mobile in the past for a variety of reasons. Because um, it's cheap. The TLDR version is it's it's cheap and its performance is very, very good. We've criticized it for not offering basic features such as tethering to mobile devices. But it's also, it was a, a service in its infancy. It was launching a way to get 3G or I think 4G actually, you use 4G yep, on BT 4G, Mobile, yep. at very, very, very low rates and you know some of the examples of 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 prices for these sorts of things were um you know you could i think something like five pounds or five or ten pounds a month would get you like half a gig of data unlimited texts unlimited use of bt's wi-fi plans for about for a, a tenner or even less if you had a bt account for 4g which is a really really great price and I've always been curious, particularly since they've recently agreed to take over EE, which provides the backbone to BT's mobile network. It's all, I've always been curious how they're going to advance this network, how they're going to make it more competitive and increase the features. And it seems that this is something that has now come into being a year or so later because BT has announced a bunch of new extensions to its offerings. It's starting to offer actual phones. Great news, Ian. Phones. Oh, yeah. So you can now... I mean, everyone loves a phone, right? Another company has allowed you to give it money for oblongs made of glass and metal that have built-in lifespans ready to be replaced on 
a regular schedule, uh, such as the iPhone 6S and the 5S and all the ones in between that. The, the Galaxy S7 and the A3 on the cheaper say, side of things. Sony's Xperia X relatively recently announced. Are you just listing all of the phones? I just thought I'd give you a snapshot of what's available. <laughs> Just a little snapshot. I've told you, it's been a very slow week. We've got to drag this right out. But here's the key thing. Here's something I found in the weeds. In addition to all of this marketing BS that we're using as an excuse to podcast this week, what is in here is I think BT has enabled tethering on its devices. Here's why I think this is. Or rather, how I discovered it. I thought it would be weird if they would launch all of these devices, all that have built-in tethering available and not allow a feature as useful to tablet owners is tethering. That's kind of why mm. you would buy something like this potentially is, is uh, you know, because you they're only selling the more higher-end gadgets. They're not trying to cater to the, you know, the pure entry levels. They're only doing smartphones and people who have smartphones may well also have a tablet and may want to tether. So I just, out of curiosity started googling doing a bit of research and i did find a support page on bt's website saying that their android phones already all support tethering and the iphone uh tethering will be enabled from june which is when we happen to now just be in mm. now i went out and stole kate's phone because she's on bt mobile because she had a, a galaxy s3 already a galaxy note 3 sorry and i i looked at it and i turned on tethering and it activated and it, it seemed to be fine. It didn't work, but I'm convinced that was down to a problem in our area, not having coverage in, in, at the time I was testing it. But the option to turn on tethering was there. It seemed to turn on successfully after, after trying for just you know three or four seconds. And, um, and the, the hotspot did appear. So it seems that BT is definitely not trying to just be the kind of budget add-on they're beefing out their product offerings into phones. They're adding more advanced features, as we said, like tethering, and they're keeping their prices relatively static. Now, I think that's pretty, pretty neat. Ian. I think that is pretty neat too. And actually, um, I've I've discussed this with you before, haven't I? Because I have a need um, for um, a, a service for tablets, be that the iPad or whatever I happen to be testing. Um, I like to have another service that isn't my main service. Um, and I can tether on three um, because they've just sw- recently switched all the tariffs around and moved me onto a more expensive one. But in fact, for me, it's worked out as barely any more expensive because I had paid for tethering in the past for one gig, uh, but three now includes 30, ter- 30 gigabytes of tethering with my package. But y- you know the score. Uh, having one network provider is is not ideal. If one goes down, you need a backup. Um, and so I was looking for something for an iPad. Uh, and this is ideal. Um, and having tethering makes it even better because it gives you even more flexibility. It means that if you um, if you find yourself out of uh, internet for whatever reason, you know your broadband goes down, you tether your computer to it, yeah. and away you go. Uh, so brilliant. And I, I think it's interesting that uh, BT's decided to go in on the cheap end of the market because that's a completely opposite of how they usually run the business. Um, and it's also um, interesting because obviously they, I suppose. There's no market for them to go into the high end because they now own EE, which is a more expensive uh, service provider. So it makes sense for them to offer uh, good deals, especially to people who are already customers of BT, which is what they do. So it's a smart move, really. Absolutely. Good news. I thought I would raise that because we have been very critical of BT Mobile in the past for kind of ignoring this very useful feature in our 
multi-device landscape and um, you know having separate contracts for every device is a very old-fashioned way of managing your connectivity so great move if anybody is taking advantage of this and has got it to work unlike us let us know podcast at natelangson.com Well, before we get into a slightly wider discussion about 4K gaming and uh, what Ian is considering for his gaming rig, I wanted to flag something ahead of Apple's event, which is taking place in a, in a week or so. This is less less UK-specific, but, but certainly Ian and I relevant, um, which is a rumor that Apple may begin to use a separate GPU to drive a new 5K Thunderbolt display at the moment apple's thunderbolt displays are not even retina let alone four or five k uh so they they lag behind pretty much all of the company's other pc products and we've heard rumors that stock in apple stores is drying up for these thunderbolts and we've got just over a week until wwdc which is where apple usually unveils hardware uh as well as mostly software and we we've heard it has a uh, a very high likelihood of being more of a software focused event this year but this room well, it, it hasn't they haven't launched hardware for two years have they well they they have i mean they've launched the they launched the mac pro they have announced sort yeah. of refreshers but which is what i'm counting on because i need to buy a new imac and i'm not buying one until wwdc is out of the way in case they uh increase the the gpu specs inside them but either way this rumor is very believable i've read a counter report that that this is something that's being worked on but it's not something that's going to be revealed this summer um and but but the reason is that as apple tries to make devices even thinner even lighter better battery life it kind of makes sense as long as you can keep things like latency to a very very low level it makes sense to put something like high performance graphics units inside the devices that would require high performance graphics you know rendering games rendering cad software that kind of stuff on a giant 5k display requires a huge amount of power and some of the devices that apple has been releasing over the last few years none of them have discrete graphics cards they're using intel's very good but still very limited in the in the grander scheme of things uh integrated chips so and it was kind of noticeable on that imac wasn't it it was noticeable on the imac although the higher end as good as it was the imacs the higher end imacs now i think all use discrete graphics chips um i believe i may be wrong about that it might just be the four the the uh the 5k ones that do but certainly you know only the very high-end macbook pro has discrete graphics and everything else it seems is is going the direction of um, of integrated. So this makes sense, Ian, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I d- yeah definitely. And I mean, it seems like there's um, maybe because I think Apple's got a bit of a, an issue in that um, professional media professionals, video editors, are tending to go towards um, Adobe Premiere now. They're, they're sort of going away from Final Cut because. Partially because of the changes, but also because Premiere is a much more widely adopted system. Uh, but one of the things that you hear a lot of complaints about is the fact that there there isn't a there used to be such a great a load of Apple hardware that could run all this stuff. Um, and of course, the laptops are very good. But if you're sitting in an edit studio, um, then you need something that's particularly well designed for that environment. And I, I do wonder if maybe Apple's turning around from the Mac Pro and maybe thinking about making the iMac 
the machine that does that. Uh, I mean, it's probably got a little bit of a way to go for that. But who knows? I, I can see that Apple probably doesn't want to let the professional services people go. And the best way to keep those guys is to make the iMac as good as possible. I, because I think the iMac is quite widely used in all that kind of creative industry. The iMacs are incredibly powerful for what they are. But I, I, I have to disagree. I do not believe Apple would bring out something that has taken such a long time to develop as the Mac Pro and then not give it a fairly long life cycle. That's just not Apple's way, Their way. in this field. Yeah, but maybe. But is there is there some sort of value to the fact that a lot of people will not buy the Mac Pro because it's quite expensive and as good as it is, it doesn't. It, it, it fits a specific kind of set of needs, doesn't it? Um, Bear in mind, suppose... the Mac Pro is a lot more upgradable than the other devices. It also yes. is a lot easier to fit into an existing workstation where you have monitors that have been very carefully chosen you've got a lot of other things a lot better io you know there are many many reasons to use something like the mac pro they're not aimed at you or i even even though you and i both work on a uh, on a professional level editing video and and audio you know this is they're, they're designed for a very very different market and and you know they they need different they need different things and they're less price conscious but you know to move into a space where you could buy a macbook pro or something like the you know the little 12 inch max i bought one of those you know they do not have decent graphics hardware although i did um play a 4k movie on my little 12 inch mac and it played perfectly smoothly so i was quite impressed with that but you know for for more higher end stuff it makes sense to put the real meaty graphics hungry chips inside the 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 device that is demanding that power which is the display i think that's quite neat and I think it will be very interesting to see how this works. It does also, of course, make a lot of sense for Apple in as much as it makes their monitors much more attractive over a competing monitor that may very well use the same panel since Apple doesn't make its own panels. This way, you can differentiate yourself and, in Apple's case, probably charge a hell of a lot more for it as a result. So we'll keep our eye on that, but I think fairly neat. And we'll come back to this topic ever so slightly on the topic of 4K gaming for a brief discussion about where we are with that after a quick check-in over the pond with our friend Tom Merritt to hear about what's been going on this week on a more global scale over at dailytechnewsshow.com. Tom. Thank you, Mr. Langson. This week on Daily Tech News Show, we covered the big announcements out of Computex in Taipei. Yes, Asus has a robot, but there's more than just that. In fact, Microsoft has a whole Windows platform for mixed reality. That includes VR, AR, and any other R's people invent. I would suppose. We also pondered Mary Meeker's prescient annual tech trends presentation. It's all about voice, at least in our conversation. And we decided Snapchat may just avoid the fate of Twitter, but we're not sure if Twitter can avoid the fate of Yahoo. All that and more, much more, on DailyTechNewsShow.com. Thank you, Tom. Now, Ian, let's continue our conversation for a few minutes about 4K and graphics power, because... If I, why don't I let you set the scene? You texted me a, a few hours ago and asked me about monitors. Why and what well, are you trying to build? I've noticed I've noticed something. It, it used to be relatively easy to buy a monitor, but one thing I've noticed now is that actually there's some complication about, um, and it, 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 it relates to 4K. Now, you know, look, we're just seeing a whole slew of new graphics cards coming out, uh, NVIDIA's. 1080 and 1070, which both promise pretty good performance. Um, but, and, and AMD will have uh, new graphics cards, I think, in a few weeks' time, actually, uh, which will probably offer similar performance. But um, the problem is that 
none of those graphics cards in terms of gaming can absolutely guarantee you a 4K experience. Um, it's actually quite, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to do gaming at 4K. But that leaves you with a sort of a, a whole bunch of questions about, you know, what, do, what monitor do I buy? And I've got to say, having had a look, it is a nightmare. It is a proper nightmare. And I've never seen such expensive monitors either. I'm, you know, I, I've spent maybe £300 on my good monitor last time. Uh, so that's, that's quite a, a mountain of questions to, uh, you know, clamber over. Uh, in the hope of finding out how to do the best possible gaming. Well, now it's an interesting question. I mean, I 4K monitors now, You, I've had a look at a few prices, and on the kind of budget end, you can get a 4K Samsung monitor, 28 inches, for just over £300, or a little bit less if you go for a 24-inch, which is not terrible, but those are not the kind of monitors necessarily aimed at gaming with very high refresh rates, low latency you know, uh, minimal blurring and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and you, and you want something, don't you, that even if you're not going to be able to drive it at, say, 100 hertz or 75 hertz or, you know, 144, you want something that, you know, a monitor but will probably last you five, six, seven years and you're probably going to go through a couple of graphics cards in that time. Yeah. And at some point, you're going to want to take advantage of those very high frame rates because, hey, you know, this is the this is PC gaming, we're not those uh, those console peasants, are we? We want to have the very high refresh rates because it looks a lot better. And I made a choice. I mean, I built a gaming PC about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, and I bought what was at the time the very, very high, the top spec Intel i7. It was the fifth gen i7. I also bought not one, but two NVIDIA GTX 970s and paired them in SLI. And I still, to this day, on my, I've got a 34-inch, it's not 4K, although the pixel count is not far away. It's a 21 by 9 aspect ratio, Dell curved LCD. It's not the world's most high-spec uh, display, but it is a very good performer for the price. I paid about £500 for it. It's curved, it's 34 inches, and I <laughs> and I can... Um, I was I was playing Doom recently, you know the new Doom game, mm, Bethesda, yes. and I've got that running on ultra settings, so every graphic setting set to max, and I get that to hit about a pretty smooth fifty FPS. It does hit sixty, but it rarely drops below fifty or or forty five, depending on what's going on on the screen, and so it's doing pretty well. And I remember when I bought that machine, I'd very recently reviewed Apple's Mac Pro. And the Mac Pro was not happy running 4K games. I, I, got, I was tried to play Borderlands 2, which was one of the few games at the time that could be run in 4K adequately. And I was getting pretty poor frame rates, you know, to memory, about 10 frames a second, which was not good. And, you know, and that was on a really high spec Mac Pro machine. It's a driver issue, that, though, isn't it? It is exactly a driver issue. And one of the things they didn't have time to do at the time was boot camp Windows and, and do that. But even still you know you're not going to see you know 50 frames a second more as a result of better drivers for that you know in my experience i mean someone listening may say yes you absolutely will that's how different things are now but in my experience it has not been that radically apart and and um you know we're we're in a, a new era where these new graphics cards are coming out and they are getting talked about in the circles of being able to run 3D and to run virtual reality but oh i'm very excited about vr and that that's what's led to a lot of this you know it's uh 
Um, I'm, I'm obviously going to review Vive at some point, and I'd quite like to be able to do it on my desktop rather than borrowing a laptop. Um, because I kind of feel like I want to do this Vive review as if I'd bought it myself. And, and honestly, the truth is that I, it's probably going to end up with me thinking about maybe buying it because I'm interested and I, I, I'd like to have it. Um, but I can't it, because there's so much to consider. And I think VR almost is a bit easier in some ways than considering you know, the next step in gaming. And I think, you know, okay, you, and I've I've got a lot of questions that probably I, I would have been able to answer a few years ago, but obviously, you know, things change and my focus has gone from AV to other things. But, you know, I'm thinking, well, what would it be too bad if I ran games at less than 4K and used the monitor, you know, upscaled on the monitor? But, um, but that's never a great solution, is it's it? It's not, and it calls into the question the whole point of having a 4K monitor itself. You you know, you want to run it at the, the panel's native resolution but you know i have to say that you know my the rig that i'm using right now will render in 4k you know very adequately if if i'm getting i I can't think off the top of my head what the resolution is for my um dell monitor i'm going to try and find it while we're talking but it's it's pretty damn high i just found it here we go 3440 by 1440 yeah so you know and and if you're talking about 4K, you're looking at something like 38, what is it, 38? 3840 by 2160. Okay, so you're talking more pixels, but not radically more. Well, we can do we could do the maths if you want, can't we? We could, do, I mean, we could do the maths. It, it's not a huge amount of difference, really. And the fact is, I'm still on that, dis- on that resolution with the specs I mentioned before and a machine I built a year and a half ago. That is running doom you know a very very high-end game just out at ultra settings and i'm still hitting 50 fps obviously 60 would be better but you know put it all in context you're gonna get you know you're gonna get pretty good results and that's without buying the absolute very latest and greatest yeah but that that, i mean again that's the thing isn't it it's it's what so from going from what i've got now so i've got a I've got a GTX 770 in my machine at the moment, which obviously is laughable in gaming terms because these things move so quickly. And I, I guess there are people who upgrade their graphics card every year. Um, but so, but what I don't want to have to do is go from running games now at between 30 and 60 frames a second, depending on what they are, at 1080p, then go to 4K and still only be able to run those games at between 30 and 60. But having spent a whole load of money on a monitor and you know the graphics cards and all that kind of stuff, it's it's a it's a difficult position to be in, isn't it? It's it's basically you're not actually. I mean, you're moving up in terms of resolution, but you're not actually getting. It doesn't feel like you're getting a hugely improved experience. It's if it depends what what your you know preference is i guess if your preference is resolution then you're fine but it's about um, it's it... about sharpness and it's and the problem is is that you know a lot of the games that will run in 4k you know their textures aren't necessarily high enough resolution to give you the real yeah. benefit you know really modern games like doom they will be fine like fallout 4 it will be fine like uh you know the most recent call of duty they will be fine but you're you're limiting yourself and i personally would probably wait another 12 months before oh good grief i haven't got the patience for that well no neither have i neither have i (laughs) at the best of times but i guess you have to just suck it up really don't you at that point and say oh i'll buy two 1080s and do that because then i guess you can run it at 4k at 
you know 60 frames a second yeah it's it's a difficult one but but it's getting very very exciting and i think that you know if you're buying for vr you're going to be fine for 4k oh yeah so that that is at least some comfort if you're if you're investing enough to buy vr then you're at least going to be able to also very comfortably run a 4k monitor True, but and of course, you know, there's a whole other thing. I mean, like we've said, like we said earlier, you know, I do a lot of video editing, so for me, having the 4K real estate on a screen is is quite useful. That's actually one of the best reasons to buy Apple's 5K display because if yes. you price all the component bits together, it's actually a very good value product. Because if you buy a 5K monitor, you're looking at hundreds of quid, and once you then, you know, pack in the, all the specs and everything, like it's it's not a cheap option, but compared to the PC equivalent, it's not that much more expensive, and you are at least getting it in a nice package. Um, so it's one to consider. It's always bugged me that you can't use those as target displays anymore, so you can only use the big iMacs now as a display for their own hardware. You can't plug another Mac into it, which you always used to be able to do, but now mm. it takes more power to drive that display, so you know that they, they kind of cut that feature off, which is disappointing. I can see it makes sense, but yeah, it's a, it's a upsetting. We have nerded out long enough, but let us know, everyone, are you thinking about 4K for gaming, for VR, for video editing? What have you heard that you think is outright wrong? What have you heard that you agree with entirely? And well, we didn't even touch on G-Sync and things like that, did we? Because, of course, that makes a huge difference to the quality of gaming. We are not that kind of podcast. No, we are not. We are not. But it may be one for a special down the line. Let us know. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear people's recommendations for monitors. There you go. Podcast at natelangston.com. I always forward those to Ian. So you do? I do, without fail. So send them there. Podcast at natelangston.com. Thank you, everybody. Hopefully, we'll be back next week when Britain has been more interesting as a resident <laughs> of the global tech scene. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.